Well, open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. We're going to be looking at chapter 2, but we'll start in chapter 1 again this morning. We're going to look at another message that Jesus sends to his church, a church with all the world around it, church in the midst of the world. And I'm sure that likely whenever you, you think of the book of Revelation, you, you think of the future, or you think of the coming judgment. Revelation is about what's coming, what's going to happen, and as you've read Revelation, there's a lot of judgment in it, a lot of bad stuff that is coming in, in the future. And you would be right to think both of, of those things, which is one of the reasons that the letter is of main interest to, to, to people. I mean, people are often preoccupied with knowing things uh, ahead of time. I mean, we, we watch the weather forecasts, so we plan events based on what the prognosticators say. We, we want the inside scoop on companies and their stocks so we can make good purchasing decisions. People look at the polls to see which way the trends are going in political races to project the outcome. I mean, there's hours of television programming all about projections of the trends or saying this or that. I mean, books have been written on predicting trends about, about the future. And while people are interested in, in the future, sadly, most search in vain for, for knowledge about it because they, they look in all the wrong places. There is only one who knows and declares the future, there's only one who knows and declares the future. Yes, my PowerPoint is not hearing me. It's not doing what it's supposed to do for, for, for some reason. There we go. Thank you. Isaiah 46. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former, former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. And we have the one source that declares it. There's only one who knows the future, declares the future, and then there's, there's one source where we, where we look for that. It's the Bible, and which Revelation is a part of. I mean, the entire Bible reveals God's plan of redemption, and the book of Revelation is the final chapter. It unveils the future history of the world. It's future, but it's history as far as God's concerned. It reveals the return of Christ, the setting up of His earthly kingdom, and it ends with the eternal kingdom in heaven. In reality, Revelation is not the ending. It's the beginning of what awaits every human being. And, and this is echoed in the very first verse of the, of the book. Look at Revelation 1, verse 1. It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by, the, by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it. For the time is near. Now, now imagine, if you would, getting this letter and having never read the contents before. You, you, you have never read Revelation before, and you're a church in the midst of the world, 
lots of pressure, and you get a letter, and this is how that letter begins. And reading those open lines where you're told what will be revealed, how it's going to be revealed in this letter, and why you should pay attention to it. The very, very first verse tells us that this letter is an unveiling, an apocalypse, and it's a foretelling, a prophecy. It's an unveiling and a foretelling. Look at verse 1 again. The revelation of Jesus Christ, the title of the book. Right there it is. It's the apocalypsis of Jesus Christ, the revealing, the revelation, concerning things that must soon take place. And there's the prophecy, an echo of it that will be stated plainly in verse 3. Apocalypsis means the revelation, which is where we get the term apocalypse. It just simply means to become visible. It's the unveiling or the disclosure of what is unseen, and it's used 18 times. That word, 18 times in the book of Revelation. Revelation unveils or makes visible the unseen things going on in history in which the church is engaged in. It shows us what is really happening in the world so the church can see it. The world can't see. The world is blind to what is going on, even around it, even what it's doing. And the church can't see clearly what's going on in the world apart from Scripture. But Scripture actually shows us, it unveils for us, so the church can actually see what's going on in the world and what will take place in the, in the future. I mean, Revelation is not an expert opinion. It's a divine disclosure of what is taking place and also what will take place. And the prophecy is the part of, is part of that. Look at verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which were written in it, for the time is, is near. I mean, prophecy simply means a foretelling of future events, an unveiling and a, and a foretelling. You can see what's actually going on. Biblical glasses, if you will. And then a foretelling. Sometimes when people think of prophecy, they think of a psychic or a more sophisticated psychic like, like Nostradamus. I mean, these are people who claim to be seers. They can see into the future, but then they often speak in riddles and shrouded assertions of what may happen. I and mean, if, you've re- if you've read any of them, and I hope you haven't, but if you have for school or whatever, I mean, it's kind of like reading a fortune cookie if you listen to them. You've read one of those, right? You're going to meet a tall, dark stranger today, and then the rest of the day you're looking for a tall guy with dark hair. I mean, if you look hard enough, you're going to find whatever it is that they say is, you know, is coming. I mean, that's not what God means by biblical prophecy. Biblical prophecy is what must take place, what will take place, accurately declared beforehand. It's a precise foretelling of exactly what will come to pass. It's a divine look into the future. While it may be described in visions and and, and symbols, there is no grading on the curb with with biblical prophecy. I mean, true biblical prophecy is not like a 60% chance of rain. Like, wow, God got three out of five right, so maybe we should listen to him. Biblical prophecy is God foretelling what must take place because he's planned the universe and what will take place because he controls the future. And he knows all things. And so when you think of Revelation, you can think of future and you can think of judgment, but you should start by thinking an unveiling so that the church can see and a foretelling of what must take place, what will take place. It shows the unseen and proclaims to us the destiny of all mankind. And it's not just the future, it's, 
It's your future, which is why you must pay attention to the God who reveals it. By the way, how's it going in the unseen parts of your life? I mean, if you have a God here who can reveal what is unseen about the future, then He can surely know the unseen parts of your, of your life, your hidden sin, your hurting heart. He knows all about it, and He has a remedy for both. If He can foretell the future and ensure it's, it, that it comes to pass, then He's also powerful enough to change your future through Christ or help you endure it. If He cares enough to reveal it beforehand, don't you think He cares for you? better believe he does. And in this book, he gives a dependable message. So you can know and you can prepare. I mean, revelation is not just for what's coming. It's for right now. It's given to the church right now. And Jesus sends these poignant, personal messages to his church in their present situation, even though he goes on to describe the coming future. He wants his church and us to know he's present. And he wants them to know that he sees and he's provided. And so he personally addresses each of these churches with specific instructions. As a whole, though, he's reminding them, Jesus is reminding them, he's not forsaken them, and he's not forgotten them. He's aware of all they're going through. He's in their midst, and the the message that he has for them and for us today is a caution. It's a caution about compromise. What do you think of whenever you hear the word compromise? Well, it likely depends upon the context in which you're, you're thinking about it. I mean, the word compromise can indicate something good or something bad, depending upon the circumstance. I mean, when engaged in negotiations for a business deal, then, then it's good. Compromise is the, is the give and take of negotiations. But if it's used by inspectors in a structural report on an interstate bridge, then compromise is a bad word. You don't want that. I mean, when speaking about contract renewal between management and the carpenter's union, then compromise is good. The word compromise is used in military planning to describe the front line, then compromise is bad. I mean, context is king, even in life, but to compromise in the moral realm, which is what this passage is talking about, is not just that, it's, it's sin. To compromise your faith, your testimony, the Word of God, is to deny the very God who saved you. And and no believer wants to do that. Do we do that at times? Yeah. Are we tempted to do that? Yeah. We don't want to. In the church at Pergamum, by refusing to deal with the corruptions that that was creeping into their own hearts and into carnal members that that promoted this, this error, the church had become impure. And they invited the rebuke of the Lord, the encouragement of the Lord, but also the rebuke of the Lord. And not all of the church had fallen to compromise, as you're going to see today. And it wasn't full-blown yet, as you'll see today. Some were actually praised as faithful, but the church as a whole had become indifferent in some way to holiness, indifferent to the pressures of culture and to teachings, thoughts that had crept in and the refusal to deal with that. And those who were on the downgrade or even in open sin was, was why Christ wrote this letter. I mean, some of the church were deceived about their own lives and they were deceiving others. Others were deceived that as long as it was them and not, not me, that it really didn't matter. It was kind of like an individualistic mindset in, in the church. They thought it's okay, so what's the big deal if the, the other person believes that? They didn't grasp the danger of cohabitating with bad teaching, with bad doctrine, or 
or cohabitating with sin? I mean, Jesus will teach them and us that, that an untainted life and the purity in the church body matters. Our sin's not just a private issue. Well, it's, it's a personal issue, but it's not just private. It, sin will surely kill you, kill your soul, steal your testimony, steal your joy, but it can also contaminate the body of Christ. It can keep the church from actually accomplishing what God intends it to, to accomplish. And because of that, we must take great care with, with our own hearts and also care about the, the hearts and the minds of, of others. That's what Jesus is going to help us with today. And he'll, he's going to diagnose a church that's flirting with compromise. And he'll also speak to individuals that, that are compromised. And that is found in Revelation 2, verses 12 through, through 17. It's, a, it's to the city. The church is in the city of Pergamum. It's one of those prominent, city, prominent cities in, in Asia. You, you can see the, the little map that we put up last time, how we're going clockwise from Ephesus to Smyrna to, to Pergamum. And, and unlike Smyrna, there, where there was almost no pictures, Pergamum has too many, too many to show. Don't get used to me showing you pictures on Sunday morning. This is a very odd thing, rare thing to do, I should say. Pergamum was not a port city like Ephesus and Smyrna. It was actually located about 15 to 20 miles inland, terraced on a cone-shaped mountain about 1,200 feet above the, the Caicos River. And it was actually a citadel of, of, of altars. In fact, that's what Pergamum means. It means citadel. Its most famous altar was to the, to the great altar of, of Zeus, which was actually on display in East Berlin a, a few years ago. Its claim to fame was near and dear to some of your hearts. It was, its claim to fame was about medicine. It had the most extensive library in Asia, containing over 200,000 volumes. Now, I know that doesn't sound like a lot to us today because you go on the Internet, there are 200,000 volumes on one website. I don't know. I mean, it's just... Millions and millions of volumes. But before the printing press, when everything was handwritten, 200,000 books in one place. That was a massive library. The library was so noteworthy that it was later sent as a gift by Mark Antony to Cleopatra. The word pergamine is actually where we get the word parchment. Pergamum, they actually started writing on pages rather than on the scrolls. And one of the most prominent temples on the mountain was to the pagan god Asclepius. His idol was in the form of a, of a serpent, and you can still see the influence today in, in the medical seal. This is the, the emergency service star of life. It has the, the rod of, a, of Asclepius on it. How many times I saw this logo growing up, working for the American Academy of Family Physicians. In fact, the original Hippocratic Oath began with the statement, I swear by Apollo, the physician, and by Asclepius, and by Hygieia, and Panacea, by all the gods. That's how the original doctor's oath be, began. It's unknown whether it was the snake or the pagan influence or emperor worship why Jesus calls this, this city the throne of Satan, but it could, be, it could be all three. And this little church was surrounded by demonic powers, which is my point, under the influence of the threat of infection because of the, the pressure that's, that, that's there. 
And the outline of the letter is, is, is fairly simple. It's God's message to a church flirting with, with compromise. There's the, the, the judge of compromise, Jesus himself, described in verse 12. There's their, the church's insensitivity to it, which is verses 13 through 15, which I, I really think is, is like the gold of this letter. We'll, we'll spend some time in those verses. Then there's the, the call to repentance from compromise, and then there's the promise for refusing compromise. There's the judge described again exactly in a way that the church needs. There's the encouragement, and then there's the problem. They're called a repentance, and then the promise if they, if they do. And, and he opens by describing a divine characteristic about Christ that will, that will meet, meet their need. Look, if you would, at verse 12. Christ is the judge of compromise. Verse 12, these are the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. He has it. This is a description that's already been used of Jesus back in chapter 1 and verse 6. And it's also used in Revelation 19. It's probably what you think of, where the sharp two-edged sword comes out of Christ's mouth when he returns and he destroys his, his enemy. And the sword there is pictured as coming out of his mouth so we don't miss the symbolism. It's the words of Christ. It just simply means God's words. But here it just says these are the words of the one who has the sword. These are not just words of trivial conversation. These are the words of, of, of one who bears the sword, words of, of one who has authority, words of one who has the right to judge, to judge bad thinking, judge any type of thinking. In the Roman capital, the proconsul is, is the one who had the right of the sword, which means the power to execute. And as Roman citizens, they would have clearly understood what this reference meant about Jesus. Remember, Christ's description of himself in each of these messages is chosen purposely to meet the need of the individual church. And, and this, this word of Christ, it has a single purpose. It's a sword, but it also has a dual result, which is, which is the two sides. It's a two-edged sword. It's a sword, authority, and a two-edged one. I mean, Christ's words have, have authority. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. It's absolute. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And, and His word is, is eternal. The word of the Lord endures forever. This is the word that was preached to you. And the sword was a symbol of power with the right to, to rule. And Jesus as the sovereign of the universe carries much greater authority than the power of, of Rome. And the Lord's authority is vested in His Word. And he's reminding the church struggling with compromise, struggling with the pressure that's coming in where the real authority lies. It's not in intellect, it's not in government, it's not in religion, it's in the Bible. It's in, it's in the words of God, the words of Christ. I mean, how do we know if something's sinful? We, we look to the Word. How do we know if it's good? We... We look to the words of Christ. I mean, we look to the Bible because there and only there we find the words of, of Jesus. And so right up front, before he ever mentions anything about the problem, he reminds them there is one authority. Christ's word is that authority. This is the description of the single purpose of the Bible. It's their authority, and yet that authority has a dual result whenever it's unsheathed. 
I mean, there's something very interesting about the description of Jesus compared to the ones already given in, in, in this third letter. I mean, the, this one has an emphasis on the adjectives of the sword. There's an article, a, a the, before all of these adjectives. It's the sword, the two-edged one, the sharp one. There's an emphasis on all of those advocates, uh, all those adjectives. I mean, the emphasis is on the sword that's used by the, by the judge. It has two sharp, two sharp sides. The Word of Christ doesn't just rule, it doesn't just have authority, but the Word of Christ actually discerns. It, it, it applies a verdict. As Hebrews 4.12 tells us, for the Word of God is, is living and powerful. It's authoritative. It's also sharp. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart, the, the two edges of the Word. It's a twofold result whenever Christ unsheaths his sword, whenever Christ speaks, when he, when he mediates his authority through the Bible. It either confirms or it condemns. It's an instrument of salvation to those who yield to it. That's the one side of the sword. It's also an instrument of judgment and death of those who reject it. It either confirms you or it condemns you. It separates one from the other. One side of the sword loosens the bond of sin. It's the balm of Gilead. The other side slays the sinner in condemnation and can strike fear in your heart. And Jesus is reminding them and us from the very beginning that you cannot be indifferent about His Word. His authority is single. And there can be two different results. You're on one side of the sword or the other. That's what He's saying right up front. It reigns over you, and the issue is not if it will affect you, it's how will it affect you. Will it conform you or confirm you, or will it condemn you? Will it confirm what you're doing in life, or will it condemn what you're doing in life? Will it confirm teaching, or will it condemn teaching? I mean, you must choose what you will do with, with Christ and His Word, accept it or reject it. You have the choice, but you'll do one or the other. And the church in Pergamum was insensitive to the fact, that fact... And they thought that they could be in some middle place, flirting with compromise. They knew what the Bible said, but, but now they got down into the weeds of application and they said, well, we can acknowledge what it says, but, but is it, do we really have to go that far with it or, 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 or what? And that led to their inaction related to, related to, to sin. Here's the second section. It's their insensitivity to compromise. Their insensitivity to compromise. Here, here's the judge. He's, he's the sole authority, and you're on one side of his word or, or the other, and not understanding that led to insensitivity, which will lead to bad things. Look at verse 13. He says, I know where you dwell. Here's God's knowledge, Christ's knowledge again, his authority, now his knowledge. I know. I know where you dwell. I know the pressure you're under. I know what's around you, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast my name. Look at this praise. And you do not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you. Where Satan dwells. There's a, there's a second echo of the pressure that they're under because of the culture. Jesus describes the church. And he's going to describe his issue with them. But he starts here with, with his knowledge and his, his come 
commendation. He says, you know, there's three things about him. I, I, I know the world in which you live. And he knows the world that we live in today. He does. He knows their faithful witness. You, you hold fast to my name and their endurance, even under persecution. They've endured to this point under under the pressure, you refused to denounce my faith. Antipas was a believer who was martyred. I mean, he was faithful unto death, like we just heard last week. Notice the emphasis, though. It's that he knows where they dwell, and he also knows where Satan dwells. I know this about you. I know where the devil is at and where he's active. Two times in the letter, he, in this specific letter, he, he mentions Satan. But, but the real gold in this letter is what he lays out next about this, this course of compromise. You can actually observe it, and you can apply this same path. How do you end up compromising? How do you start flirting with it and then end up in, in full-blown sin? It's laid out in, in verses 14 and, and 15. The path of compromise, or a course to, to compromise. And compromise always begins with, with pressure. Always begins with pressure. I don't think any Christian wakes up one day and says, Hey, I want to compromise today. Hey, I don't want to, I don't want to go for the Lord today. It always begins with, with, with pressure, and that pressure can be, can be subtle. He says, I, 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 I know that you live where Satan sits enthroned. You have pressure, symbolic of the religious and intellectual and political influence. That brought tremendous pressure on the church to, to conform. It's all around them. It's pressing in on them. Culture around them, culture around them was, was secular, similar to our day. Pergamum, with its library and medicine, and one of is one of the major intellectual uh, intellectual centers of, of the day. I mean, only Athens and Alexandria were were equal to it. Emperor worship was linked to to civic duty, patriotism. I mean, to, to, to a Roman, uh, offering incense to the emperor, I mean, what's the big deal? I mean, this is what we do. We're Romans. We're, we're honoring Rome, and here's the head of Rome. I mean, worship Jesus, do whatever you want, but, but be a good citizen. Be, be a good Roman. I mean, you might think of it like how you would feel about someone who refuses to pledge allegiance to the flag on the 4th of July. Not an American? That's what a Roman thought about a Christian. Christians uh, were, were atheistic. They were haters of the human race. They hated Rome. And therefore, felt pressure from the culture. They didn't show love for their country, and therefore the Roman people, they refused to assimilate into the culture. They, they separated over here. They gathered together on Sunday mornings and heard messages from this, this odd book and talked about a risen Savior refused to assimilate, and that brought tremendous pressure to conform, and, and some were, were being influenced, some were caving to, to the pressure. There's some ways that you feel pressure in the world that we live in. As you think about it, I mean, remember Satan doesn't have to outright attack you as a Christian or the, or, or the church to get you to turn away from, from God. He just applies the slightest of pressure. And typically, that pressure comes as the world changes. And then as the world changes, that actually presses in on the, on the church. I mean, long before the church changes, 
the world does. The world changes, and that pressure then begins to be applied to, to the church. And then the church must respond to things because the world has changed. E- issues that it never had to respond to, to before. I mean, think about our own culture. I mean, have you changed your position? Has the church changed its position on, on gender identity? No. Has the Bible changed on what it teaches about that? No. Have you had to talk about it a lot more than you had in the past? Some, sometimes that, that you, more than you want to? Why? Because the culture is changing. And as the culture changes, that, that, that puts pressure. The church now has to respond against that pressure. And you must resist that pressure or you'll be conformed by it, which is why Jesus is writing this letter to us in, into this, to this church. I mean, remember, you're either growing in godliness or growing in worldliness. You're on one side of the sword or the other. And you're thinking, changing your thinking is what moves you along that continuum. So compromise begins with pressure. It can be even the slightest pressure to conform. And then that moves to an enticement. Compromise involves enticement. There's pressure, and there's an enticement that comes along. Sometimes that enticement is to, to get out from the pressure, or to be liked, or even more subtle ways. Look at how he describes the issue here. Verse 13, he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. It's not just where Satan dwells. Verse 14, there was bad teaching. It's where the pressure is coming. Now you find specifically where this slight pressure is coming. It's thinking. Verse 14, but I have a few things against you after the praise because you have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Look at verse 15. So also you have some in the same way who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Notice it's the teaching. It's not the deeds of the Nicolaitans yet. It's the teaching of, of, of Balaam and of the Nicolaitans. Now, the story here of, of, of Balaam is found in Numbers 25 and Numbers 32. It's the story of Balak, uh, Moab's king, who tried to get Balaam, a Gentile, to curse the children of Israel for money. You might remember the story because it's the one that has a talking donkey in it. And I said this morning in the early service, that's not too uncommon for us today if you watch politicians in the news, and I thought, I probably shouldn't say that in the second service, so just scratch that from your mind, all right? In the biblical story, the Balaam there tried three times to curse God's people, and all he could do was bless them. And when the curse failed... Balak turned to another approach. Out and out cursing, and all he could do is bless them, and so he goes around the barn another way. Numbers 25. It says, while Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab, for they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. There's the enticement. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. And so Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor. And the Lord was angry against Israel. So Balak corrupted them from within. He couldn't curse them from without, so he corrupts them from within. The Moabite women seduced the men of Israel, and 
once they were in relationship with them, then they invited them to, to worship their gods. Hey, you can worship yours, just, just worship ours too. You don't have to worship, just come. Just be there. You show respect, right? Show respect for the culture. The devil's usual mode of temptation is, is not an obvious evil, but an apparent good. I've said before, he doesn't show up at your door in a, in a red suit with a pitchfork asking you to invite him in. He knows that you're not going to fall to outright heresy. You're in a good church, so he introduces small compromises in your thinking, small compromises in the foundation. He knows you're not going to up and leave your spouse one morning, so he deceives you through misplaced priorities that can now only be fulfilled by forsaking your covenant. He knows you're not going to simply stop coming to church, so he convinces you to get so busy that failing to come is your only option to now fulfill those responsibilities that you've picked up. You know how many times I've said to myself and have heard from others, I really don't know how I got here. How did I get here? I'll tell you how. Just drip, drip, little by little, one thought after another, one refusal to hear or hardness of heart, one lie that makes you believe the next, makes the easier the next one easier to believe. I mean, Satan's game is seduction. He's a snake, remember. And you don't think you're so smart that you can tell when it's coming. Oh, I'll see him. Because of the, the pressure that's, that, that's there, that pressure then comes from enticement, and then that enticement leads to an entrapment. I mean, John uses the word stumbling block here. Look at verse 14. But I have a few things against you because you have some in the church who have bad teaching. They're bad thinking. And that teaching is the teaching of, of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put stumbling blocks, put a stumbling block before the sons of, of Israel. There's the key word. There, there were people in the church teaching or being influenced by teaching that there was nothing wrong with participating in the emperor cult or just part of being a Roman citizen. It's your civic patriotic duty. Besides, I mean, you might be able to win these people to Christ in subtle ways. A stumbling block means that you're entrapped by it, to be caught until you can't get out. You, you think of one of those glue mousetraps. Have you seen those things before? Not the one that just whacks him. I mean, just catches him. You think, oh, poor little mousey. We don't want something to just whack him like that. So you put a glue trap out, which is worse. Right? I mean, he gets in there, and then he stays alive. He struggles, and the more he struggles, the more he gets stuck. And then he just starves to death. He can't get out from the, from the glue. The, the harder that they struggle, the more entangled that they become. It's a really good picture of what compromise does. It's the works of Satan. Little pressures come in, even little enticements that are there, and then that leads to an entanglement. And then you get in the midst of it, and the more you struggle against it without actually repenting of the bad teaching to begin with, the more you, you get engulfed. Ephesians 6.10, you know that passage well, warns us about the schemes of the devil, his camouflages, his concealment. I mean, these are his covered traps that can't be easily seen. Don't think that you can see them. 
Satan's enticements then lead to entrapments, and entrapments then, then lead to engulfment in, in sin. It's a progression, this passage. Verse 14 says the stumbling block had a result. Verse 14, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that or to eat the things, sacrifice the idols. The, the stumbling block had a result. The entrapment had, had a result. The, the teaching was moving them somewhere. There was a goal behind the bad, the, 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 the unbiblical thinking. And that was so that they actually might act, that they might eat food sacrificed to idols. They've never done that to begin with. Never done that without the pressure. Never done that without the enticement. Never done that without the entrapment. But now they're here. And they're in the play, and, and they're already married to the to the woman. To they're already participating in the feast. We might as well do it. It says they practiced idol worship and sexual immorality. That's what Israel did, and they went to the idol worship. They ate the food of, of a celebration, and then that followed. It was followed by unspeakable immorality. It's exactly what the Bible says that Israel did when they rose up to play in Mount Sinai. Children of Israel would never engaged in that. If there wasn't pressure, there wasn't enticement, and then an entrapment, they'd already been compromised, though. Sin has a road. It has a repetition, and it has a result. And the result of sin is more sin. Sins are like burrs. They, they stick to you, it sticks to you, and they stick together. Certain sins, you, you can't do one without doing the you, you can't, doing the other. When you commit private sin, you, you often lie about it, and so not only are you sinning in this specific way, but now you're you're sinning again by lying, and then and then those sins multiply. You've been there, like me. You know how it goes. I wish I could get in your hearts right now, or in my own. Whenever I'm following this this path, show you the lies that you're believing, and give you faith to turn, because nothing but heartache awaits. If you don't stop now, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. See what great ablaze a little fire kindles, the Bible says. It brings engulfment to sin, and then that brings estrangement from God. Look at verse 15. He says, so you also have some in the same way who hold to, to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Again, notice it's the teaching. You remember before, it was the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Now it's the teaching, but Christ has already said he hates the deeds of the Nicolaitans. It means he hates their teaching as well. It's an estrangement from God, a separation from God. You're now on the other side of the sword. Now the people that were practicing these things held to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Nicholas was one of the seven. In Acts 6, to distribute food, where we get the, the concept of deacons from. And, and it's believed that he turned apostate and gained followers, which just as a side note, I mean, the way you start doesn't guarantee the way that, that you finish. So, so be on guard. I mean, you come out of the, out of the barrel of the gun for, for the Lord, praise God. You're, you're on fire, as they say. Stay that way. So be careful because that doesn't guarantee how you're going to end. Spurgeon said, you don't want to eat stale bread. The Lord has fresh bread that he bakes for you every day. He feeds you, feed on that bread, not on yesterday's victories or accomplishments or sins. Today, you look, look to the Lord 
And so here it is. There's the pressure that comes. It'll be slight pressure. You don't even feel it. It's just there. Now you have to respond to it. An enticement, entrapment, engulfment. And then once you get in the middle of the glue trap and it's all over you, then, then it's like, well, why would God even hear me anyway? I mean, I'm stuck. Look at me. I'm supposed to be a Christian and I fell into this. I can't go back to God. Those are all lies of the devil. Exactly what he wants you to think because he wants to keep you estranged from God. It's the kindness of the Lord that leads you to repentance. There is not a single sin that you have ever committed or ever will commit which will separate you from Christ. That's what Romans 8 says. He's laid claim to you. I mean, you don't think that when he died for you, he, you knew, he knew all the sins that you were going to commit even after you confessed him? Of course he did. You understand he laid, we talked last week about going back to bedrock. You died when you bowed the, bowed the knee to Christ. It was the end of you, and that's whenever death took place. Now the new life that you have, you live for Christ unto Christ. It's his life. But take that one step further. That's focused on, on you in, in a good way, going back to bedrock. But that means at that moment, Christ claims you for his own. You're his. He will not forsake you. He cannot forsake you. He, 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 he has written your name in his book. And so even whenever you fall to this path, even when you feel completely estranged from God, that feeling is there to bring you back to Christ. Look away from yourself and look to Christ. Look away from your sin and look to the cross because He wants to set you free. That's the whole purpose of guilt. Conviction is not to keep you there, but so you can be cleansed and, and forgiven. These followers of, of Nicholas were antinomian. They were against the law. They, they said Christ has set us free and we should live that way. Free from restraint, free from responsibility, free from authority, and they were they were in the church, and they were actually using Christ as their excuse to continue in sin. Isn't that a bizarre concept? Using Christ or the words of the Bible to actually justify our sin. It is a bizarre concept, but but we do it often. They claimed liberty in Christ to actually dishonor Christ. They were like the man who, who didn't like how tight the parachute harness felt, so he jumped out of the plane without one. And he felt great mobility, and he even shouted, I'm free, I'm free, until he hit the ground. Remember, we said a couple of Sundays ago, don't think that every contrary wind which makes you take down your sail is is somehow a punishment from the Lord, it may just be keeping you off of a reef that you can't see. The restraints that God brings in your life, the limitations that are there, the restrictions that you find in Scripture that your flesh doesn't want to submit to, remember those are there because He loves you, because He knows if they're not there, what will happen and where we'll go. Remember Romans, every soul has a master, every man or woman is a slave. Remember Christ is a good master. And it's a good thing to be a slave of Christ. You can either be a slave of Christ or a slave of Satan. And you can either serve Jesus or, or serve sin. And so this is what's going on. They're somewhere in the middle of this process. And he doesn't want it to happen. They're flirting with this. 
So he calls them in the middle of it to, to repent. It's the third section, the repentance from compromise. Look at verse 16. He says, therefore repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. I mean, verse 16 draws the conclusion from verse 14. Now, the church was in jeopardy of this unchecked compromise, this bad teaching, this bad thinking which came into the church, and their situation was exactly the opposite of the Ephesians. you remember the Ephesian church? They were careful in doctrine. They didn't compromise anything in doctrine. They had just forgotten how to love. The church at Pergamum was faithful, but they had forgotten how to fight forgotten the danger of error. And both of those churches are called to repent. And here, Pergamum is called to repent of their insensitivity to error, their inattentiveness to sin in the church, the bad thinking in the church. And they're also called to repent of personal compromise. Do you like the word repent? Some people don't. It sounds like a negative word. It's actually a positive word. It's actually to turn from a bad direction and go in the right direction. But you know how you, you turn from a bad direction and go in, in, in the right direction? You change your thinking. That's what the word literally means, to change your mind about something and then turn and go in a completely different direction. Your thinking has to be changed. How's your thinking changed? Well, there's the sword, the one authority as a Christian. They look to the Bible and not to the culture or, or anything else, and they get on the right side of the sword. They were insensitive to error. Notice the failure to deal with the false teaching and the invalid lives within the church constitutes sin. There's a repentance called for. Their inattentiveness to sin in the church. They, they didn't discipline it. They, they didn't correct the teaching. Man, that can be so hard. You're sitting there. Now, in one sense, this is, this is part of the job of the elders. You don't have to bear this alone. That's one of the... Elders are set apart in the church to teach sound doctrine and refute error. That's their job. So you don't need to run around and you know quote the the uh, you know the, the confessions of the faith to everyone, but you do need to be aware of error, and you need to support the elders in their task to do that, which sometimes includes the hard job of disciplining. We live in a day where any form of discipline is not just unpopular. Frankly, it's unheard of. Now, we're not talking about you know the bad examples that you have seen. Uh, you know, dragging somebody in front of the church, a mean bunch of people that they're just just nasty. That's not biblical discipline. So don't don't go to the red herring. Deal with what the text says, which the Bible talks about discipline. But people today say, you know, why do that? You can't do that in our day. I mean, uh, people will just leave the church and go to another church. I mean, actual discipline where elders and others are involved in somebody's life and they're doing that over months, if not years, and they're calling them and they're loving and they're being compassionate and they're doing all these things, but, but this person is still bent on, on destroying themselves or destroying others, and so the elders intervene in that way, and therefore they bring that to the church to prayerfully intervene on that, on that person's behalf. And people will say, you can't do that today. We'll just leave and go to another church, and that other church will take them, and, and they won't even ask any questions. That's why we can't practice it today. We just can't do that. I'll, I'll tell you why, why we have to do that. 
Because Christ commands it. Which means that it would be sin not to do it. And repenting of insensitivity to compromise. Again, you can go back to the letter to the Ephesians, repenting about insensitivity with love. You know, the Bible just addresses everything. You could be unloving in dealing with compromise. Listen to the letter to Ephesus. Here, they're loving in the sense of compassionate. They're insensitive to this compromise. And that begins with dealing with it in our own hearts. So there's this repentance of this personal cooperation. Notice what it, what it says here. Therefore, repent or else I'm coming to you, personally, you, quickly. And I will make war against them. Notice he, he separates with the sword of my mouth. I'll make war with my word. The Bible says that we deal with public sin and private sin and personal sin. There are sins that are public that people know about. There are crashes and falls that, that just, they're just public. Remember MacArthur always says that when a person falls publicly, they didn't fall from way up here. They were already close to the ground when they fell. There's already been a downgrade going on in their private life. God just exposed it publicly and you didn't know what was going on. There's public sin. There's private sin. That's where it starts first. There's personal sin. You take command seriously. There's an area in your life that be, becomes a right that you demand, and, and you might want to take a look there. You don't like to find things. You think that we shouldn't call out bad teaching. You might be on a bad road there. Of course, if you're always the one starting a fight, then you need to go back and, again, read the letter to Ephesians. You're likely doing it without care, but... But if you don't repent of these things, then it says Jesus will war against you with his word. I mean, what Christian wants to stand against the word of Christ? That's what this says. You will be in a position against his word, standing contrary to Christ. Look at verse 16. Therefore repent, or else I'm coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the, the, with the sword of my mouth. And he's already told us what the sword is. Two interesting things here. The war will come against the compromisers only. I will make war against them with the word of my mouth, people who don't repent. But Christ will visit the whole church, whole church in judgment. Some of you, like me, have been through ugly church situations where there are good people, people that want to follow the Lord, and then there are bad people, people that are wrapped up in their, their dissension and otherwise. And sometimes those things get dealt with in very beautiful ways, and they're just handled, right? The Lord, the Lord works through it, and it's a beautiful thing. And there are other times when Jesus shows up. And when he shows up, he separates the sheep from the goats, if you will. And that can be really painful. But remember, it's the Lord's gracious work that he's doing, even though it's painful. When that separation happens, it's painful. But it's the Lord that's doing that. And he's purifying. And he's setting these on that these are the ones that are on the, the wrong side of my word, and these are the ones standing in my word, and, and you know where you want to be in that in that equation. He will be the enemy of those in compromising error. But he's also a disciplining father to the faithful. Again, not everything that 
that happens in the church follows a, you know, a worldly paradigm. I mean, the church comes, it grows, and, and off we go to the races, never to decline. You know, some of Christ's best work is when he actually shrinks a church. He deals with things in it. And so the church here has two choices, to go to war themselves against the bad doctrine and practice, repent, or else God will do it for them and the results will be less pleasant. Here's the final, final section. There's the promise for actually obeying. Verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to, to him who overcomes, to, to him, the overcomer, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give a white stone and a new name on the stone which no one knows but, but he who receives it. Notice again, this is a call to all the churches. This is a call for every church to continually be on the right side of the sword. He who has ears, what the Spirit says, to, to the churches and to those who will hear God's word, he says, to those who repent, who will align who with the sword then, and submit to the message. They're called the overcomers. And how do you overcome? It doesn't say that you're going to overcome by conquering Satan and overcoming the powers of the culture and the forces and you're going to go in and you're going to do this to compromisers or, or whatever else, the evil in the world. It, it, an overcomer here is a believer who listens to the voice of Jesus, humbly submits to it, above all the other voices out there. It's a believer who feels the pressure who senses the enticement, but, but doesn't fall to it, has their eyes and their ears fixed on the truth. And he says, if you do that, it's, it's that simple. You're, you're an overcomer. And, and to, it's what a true believer does. And to them, he promises glorious rewards. Hidden manna and then a white stone. I, I think this hidden manna is the idea of, of temporal blessing right now in the midst of this culture, in the midst of those who, who, are, who are, are, are pressing in on the church, those who, who just stand with Christ, humbly stand with Christ, then, then Christ, who's the bread who came out of heaven, you'll have him and you'll never hunger again. I think it's the idea of how he, he feeds you, ministers to you, in, even in the midst of a, of a secular culture, those who stand. But then he goes further. So right now he has promises for those who who overcome. And then he also talks about the future, this white stone, the new name on it. Uh, after the games, whoever were the winners of the games, participated in the games and finished, actually got a, a white stone and their name was written on it and that was their ticket to the banquet, to the feast. So they've run the race and now the race is done. And now they get to go to the banquet and the celebration. So he's saying, in the midst of the race, the hard race, in the midst of the race that you may stumble and trip over your own feet, you may fall down, you may eat dirt, but a believer will rise again because Christ has promised that you'll finish the race. When you finish it, if you continue and stay in, I will give you the ticket to the banquet. This is what we all run for. We run for the prize. Those who find their existence in Christ will overcome and he'll give entrance into the eternal kingdom. So let me ask you. Do you have this bread? It's hard, isn't it? You'll not survive it on your own. You'll not survive it apart from 
feeding on Christ. You'll not survive it without Christ being your, 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 your precious possession, being compelled by Him, feeding on Him. You'll, you'll not survive it apart from allowing His voice to come into your ears and your heart and your mind more than the voice of the world and the culture. What about the new name? That's what you're looking forward to? Too many roots here will actually take away the power of what is to come. You need that encouragement, that hope, to propel you on in the midst of, of difficulty here. Look at your own heart. You're always searching and never lighting, never finding that, that peace of Christ. Have you ever tasted the Lord's good? He satisfies. He satisfies way more than the enticements that are out there, the bad teaching that's out there. What about your life? see yourself somewhere on that continuum of compromise? Maybe feeling the pressure? Maybe being enticed? Maybe giving into it? Maybe you're right in the middle of a glue trap. Maybe you struggled so much that you, you're, you're stuck. You're, you can't move. Your body can't move. You're in such sin, but you can still move your mouth. And if you can't move your mouth, you can, you can move your heart. You can cry out to the Lord. He can rescue from a blue trap. He can. What are you doing right now? Subtle pressures. These changes don't come from the, from the Bible. But life. If you see the seeds of compromise, then, then stop the slide. Do what Jesus says here. Repent. You as an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Oh, Father. I've already prayed, but I pray again, even now, for those who are here. We are, we're all here, somewhere on this continuum. Maybe this morning is just a message, a reminder that you, you know what we go through, and that you love us, and that you promised helps for us. Maybe it's a reminder the answer is, is always in the Bible. There's no middle ground there. But maybe, just maybe. Some here, some sin that's overtaken them. They feel that estrangement from you, and they're listening to the evil one who says he won't take you back, he won't cleanse you, he doesn't care. You're too unworthy. Father, would you say to them this morning, Christ is worthy? There is nothing in us that we look to. We look away from ourselves to you. Help them look to Christ. And just say, Lord, help me. Forgive me. Put me on the right path, and you will. We love you. Help us, Lord, be a church that doesn't compromise. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.